1: Hello, listeners, welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amber Nickel, the host of the channel, and today we are going to be talking with Mark Idele about his most recent publication, Stalinism at War, the Soviet Union in World War II. Mark, welcome to the channel. Why don't you start by telling us just a little bit about yourself?
0: Thank you, and thanks for having me. Um yeah, so I'm, I'm a historian of the Soviet Union. Uh, I'm based at the University of Melbourne in Australia. Uh, I was trained as a historian in Germany, in Russia, and then at the University of Chicago uh, as a PhD student in the US. Uh, I moved to Australia in 2004 for my first job after the PhD, and I liked it, and I stayed. And so now I'm sort of... A, Um, an Australian. Um, I'm currently uh, the Hanson Professor in History at the University of Melbourne, and I also uh, serve part-time as the Deputy Dean in the Faculty of Arts.
1: I really enjoyed reading this text, and as always, I was curious about what led you to write Stalinism at War. Would you mind sharing a little bit about this process of discovery with our listeners today?
0: Yes, sure. It, like many things in life, it kind of uh, was a little bit accidental in a way. I my PhD uh, research, uh, which became my first book, was uh, social political history of war veterans uh, in the soviet union so it it dealt with the second world war insofar as it dealt with second world war veterans but it didn't actually deal with the war in fact i i defined my topic as beginning with uh demobilization right Uh, and it was certainly not military history in 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 any sense of the term it was social political and to some extent legal history of veterans but i was perceived uh, nearly from the outset, as a military historian of the Soviet Union in World War II, um, and I remember my my astonishment when my my dissertation was listed uh, as new dissertations in military history. I'm like, what? what? Um, but the result of that was that people would start, and there weren't a lot. You know, the the field now is fairly crowded in in Soviet Union World War II, but it wasn't at the time. There weren't a lot of people who weren't you know, hardcore military, like operational-style historians um, uh, who uh, worked on World War II. There's a lot working on the 30s and then a whole group of us working on the post-war years, but fairly few people on uh, World War II. So I was then asked more and more often as books started to come out to review them. And it sort of pushed me a little bit into uh, thinking about this war. Uh, I also was inspired by teaching, um, uh, survey courses and then more specialized courses. Um, and I, I kind of, uh, started to find that there was interesting disconnect between different spheres of history. There were the military historians, there was good economic history of the war. Uh, there was an increasing number of social and cultural history of the war. Uh, There's a very established and very good literature on the diplomatic history uh, of this war, but most people don't seem to read each other. It's nearly kind of uh, the the social historians read the other social historians, the the diplomatic historians read other diplomatic historians. There's not a lot of um, dialogue. And so that was as I was starting to teach more of that and think about this more and more, I, I thought I would that's what I would like to try to do uh, is to bring these literatures into a, a, a conversation with each other. So I think that's kind of the, the intellectual path which got me towards this book.
1: You certainly do bring them all together in this text. One of the things that I really appreciated was the way that you treated the speciality and temporality of World War II in the Soviet Union. You really forced readers to reconsider many of our preconceived notions about where this war was and when it began and when it ended. How does your geographic shift eastward to Asia and your starting point in the late 1930s Really, fundamentally, alter our understanding of both World War II and the Soviets' experiences of it.
0: Yeah, so I, I think that's one of the 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 things where I was really inspired by the diplomatic history because the diplomatic history uh, always understood that Stalin was. Uh, functioning in a world of threats from both directions, from the east and from the west. Um, because the threat from the west eventually really um, uh, became real in in the war later, that's what a lot of our attention is focused on. But diplomatic historians have long uh, seen uh, his his very strong attempts to um, and successful attempt to uh, avoid a two-front war, uh, so he did not want to fight uh, with Japan in the east and Germany in the west, um, for obvious reasons. Two-front war is never good, uh, but in in particular in the in the Soviet case, where you have these enormous distances, uh, only uh, bridged by the lifeline of the uh, Trans-Siberian railway. So. Uh, so that that I found, reading the diplomatic history, I found very convincing. Um, but then uh, if you then read histories of Soviet Union and World War II, very often they start, they, they, they focus on the Great Patriotic War, right, rather than uh, World War II more generally. Uh, and the maps you very often get of the war are completely European, right? So, um, so I, that was one of the things I was interested in, what happens to our kind of, vision of what's going on in the Soviet Union domestically and internationally if we take this seriously uh, that uh, they were balancing uh, threats from East and West Um, and that's also I think being located in Australia where you know you get a more Asian perspective of, of the world probably also helped and then I was very inspired by uh, by more recent historiography of World War II, which does that that shift as well, which looks at at uh, China more. Um, but what it what it does is that, as you say, it shifts us back to thinking about the war in Asia and the Soviet involvement there. And just as a very short sketch, uh, as war breaks out uh, between Japan and uh, China uh, in 1937. Uh, Stalin uh, basically decides to support uh, uh, China, and, but support them just enough uh, that... So the Chinese government often, always wants the Soviets to actually come and and fight, right? And instead, what Stalin wants to do and does very successfully is supply them with enough material, military advisors and some men. There is some... some uh, uh soviet personnel particular um uh uh, pilots uh who who fight and die uh, there but provide enough support so that they can bog down the japanese uh so the japanese army is uh busy in china and can't go uh, to the soviet Union, and that basically works there are you know there's an undeclared border war in 38 39 with two major battles uh, between uh, the Japanese uh, and the Soviets, both of which the Soviets win. And that has a, a, an enormous impact on decisions uh, uh, reached in Tokyo about what to do next, namely go south, which brings them into conflict with the US. So that early phase of World War II is actually very important and the, the Soviet participation there is very important. And the strategy there works extremely well. Uh, what does that to our vision of the Soviet Union World War II, well, I think it recalibrates it a little bit. I don't see this as a major, you know, I don't see this as some kind of revolution of our understanding, but I think it recalibrates our understanding of what happens domestically. Um, the first big, uh, the, the, the first deportation of an entire nationality, the Soviet Koreans from the Far East, happens exactly in that in that context as part of uh, you know securing the front line against uh, against Japan uh, so that's also in 1937 uh, is decided on the same day they decide to uh, to uh, support uh, China so uh, and that that sets the scene for um, for you uh, a whole range of of national deportations uh, throughout the war, which play an important role uh, in my book. Um, So what it also does, I think, uh, so it changes a bit our our mental map, I think, away a little bit from European history um, to kind of Eurasia. And I think it complicates um, sort of easy narratives of Stalinism at war uh, as a kind of black and white image of the Soviets, either being terribly bad uh, or terribly good, um, because uh, the the actions in the in the East are fundamentally ambiguous. Uh, in 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 a way, you know, let's say 1941 is much less ambiguous in a way uh, when they get attacked. I mean, mi- I might just stop there, but maybe you have have more uh, uh, more more questions on this.
1: Yeah, I think that actually kind of covers my question perfectly and leads to the next one that I had. Uh, I think so far in this conversation, we've focused a lot on the beginnings of World War II and the kind of Asian arena of World War II for the Soviets. But you also present in your book very compelling evidence that this war continues past 1945. And especially for the Soviets, would you mind telling us a little bit more about this continuance?
0: Yes, uh, of course, maybe it's it's helpful for listeners to for me to just quickly sketch what my periodization is um, so they get a sense of how how that fits in. So I begin the war uh, or the Soviet participation in, in the war in Asia in in August 37, so that's when the decision is made to to help uh, Japan and to deport the Koreans. Um, So that's the first phase. It's August 37 uh, to uh, September 39, and that's basically a defensive war in Asia, which essentially they win, right? Um, The second phase then uh, begins in September with uh, the September 39, with the Soviet participation in or with the soviet uh uh invasion of of um of poland uh, on the 17th after the germans had invaded uh, on the first of september uh, and that phase uh goes through the 22nd of june uh, 41 and that's an expansive phase uh expansion aggressive war uh, in europe phase three then uh, begins with the, the German attack, 22nd of June, uh, and goes through about you know February uh, 43. That is the the uh, end of um, of Stalingrad, uh, and that's the f- defensive war against Germany. So the first big phase of the Great Patriotic War, and then uh, offensive war first against Germany uh, from February 43 through 9th of May 45 and then in the summer of 45 against Japan, a relatively short campaign. Um, and then uh, we have a final fifth phase and that's the phase this question was about and that's the consolidation and pacification phase uh, which I begin well it depends where you are when the, the the places are liberated from German occupation, about from the end of the war from liberation uh, to around 49. And I'll take 49 as the end point uh, because there's another big uh, set of deportations from Ukraine, from from, uh, from the Baltic states. And these deportations end uh, in a, a very radical sense uh, the, the, the insurgency against uh, the Soviets in these countries. So what you get is basically the war ends in the soviet heartland in 45 although as i point out also in that chapter there is a lot of dislocation violence and so on going on uh, at least until 47 when mass demobilization is over um, but in the western borderlands uh, it is a very nasty very bloody counterinsurgency campaign uh, against uh, nationalist resistance um, which uh, which which is militarily, they're defeated by forty five, but as a terrorist and insurgency operation, uh, that continues on. Uh, the targets of the the resistance are by and large civilians. Um, so whenever they're confronted with actual Soviet troops, uh, they lose very quickly because they're outmanned and outgunned. Uh, but they go after what they perceive as, uh, you know, activists and and allies of the Soviets, in particular in the countryside. So this is actually very violent: uh, Ukrainian versus Ukrainian, you know, Baltic, Balts versus Baltz, Um and uh, Soviet officials. Well into the late '40s, in the countryside in Ukraine, for example, would regularly uh, uh, carry automatic rifles for self-protection. So it was a very violent uh, part uh, of this war. And it, it so if you're thinking about, you know, when does that does that war end? If you're in one of those Western border insurgency regions, you know, there's troops around, there's fighting, there's killing, uh, there's uh, a lot of violence uh, and so the war really only uh, ends in 49.
1: So in addition to kind of reframing or uh, replacing our mental maps and temporal scopes of World War II and the Soviet Union, you also take up quite a few major questions that I think have been looming over the Soviet experience of World War II for some time. I think you do all of this with stunning clarity and very concise narrative. And as a teacher, I really appreciate the latter. Of the many questions you addressed, I was immediately drawn to a few. One of them regards the Soviets' preparedness for war and the role of Stalinism during the interwar in that preparedness and or lack thereof. I think listeners will be interested in this as well. Would you mind sharing with us your answer? Were they ready or not? And what role did interwar Stalinism play in this?
0: Yes, so I see in many ways the Stalin revolution in the late 20s, early 30s, um, and pretty much all of stalinism of the of the 1930s as motivated by preparing for war by preparing for war by overcoming industrial backwardness by preparing for war by building a modern army by preparing for war by subduing the peasantry uh, who had who they remembered had caused uh, the tsarist regime trouble in world war one and then of course Uh, the Soviets' trouble during the Civil War, um, and by eliminating as many enemies as possible, right? Um, Now, the question then is, was that successful? And in a way, in a way it was, right? They win the war against Germany, so obviously it was successful. Uh, Was it very efficient? No um was it was all of the violence necessary to prepare for this war no um certainly uh collectivization was a, a a great debacle uh on two fronts one well on three fronts really it leads to a major famine uh so you know a lot of people starve to death so you have fewer soldiers so that's a problem from that perspective um the resentment against the regime in the countryside is just enormous when the war breaks out um, and and feeds into uh, collaboration uh, with the enemy or at least defeatism. Um, and uh, the collective farm system is so ineffective, inefficient uh, that they don't actually have the grain reserves uh they set themselves as targets to have uh when a war breaks out. So uh it that was in many ways a debacle. Um in terms of actually increasing the kind of military capacity of this of this society, it was relatively successful, and there's certainly an increase in military preparedness ideologically. Um, Uh, militarily, uh, industrially, until 37. And then the Great Terror, which was also motivated by war preparation, getting rid of all enemies, right? Once and for all, get rid of all of these enemies uh, is an extremely destructive force. It uh, decreases military preparation. It destroys certain special forces um, which had actually been created. So, Uh, They used to have uh, the beginnings of of, of fairly good mountain uh, forces. Uh, They all uh, disappear in the Great Terror. Um, There was uh, preparation for for partisan warfare. All of that gets dismantled uh, during the Great Terror. And then, of course, it creates, it weakens the army, it weakens command in the army, um, it uh, weakens uh, a, a sense of, of responsibility and taking risk, uh, because if you make any mistake, you 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 might get into trouble, uh, which becomes a big problem uh, for for military leadership early in the war, um, and it also destroys a lot of the ideological preparation uh, which had been uh, done in the early 30s, because there was this whole pantheon of of, of heroes, and then many of them disappear in the. In the uh, Great Terror, so I think you know it's a quite a mixed record. Um, the overall strategy of building uh, a uh, a strongly militarized uh, uh, country in preparation for a major industrialized world war was probably sound, right? But uh, the, the the story is is quite convoluted in terms of uh, what was achieved. But to make it maybe, you know, easy, that story, would be to say that a lot was achieved until 1937, and then 37-38, the Great Terror destroys a lot of that. So they're probably worse prepared in 1939 than they were in 1937.
1: Given my own research interest, I was immediately drawn to your analysis of Soviet nationalities during World War II. I don't usually drag out quotes in these, but in this case, I wanted to share one because it really kind of stuck with me. You write that, quote, this was not just Ivan's war, but also Tenzin Dins, Suzan's or Nachman's, and of course, Stalin's, a Georgian who spoke heavily accented Russian, end quote. In short, the Great Patriotic War was not just a Russian war. Soviets of several different nationalities fought, died, and experienced it in different ways. How might thinking about this war in this way reshape our understanding and our teaching of World War II? I think it
0: it significantly complicates the narrative because if you have basically, uh, and also the kind of political implications, I guess, of that history. Um, if you have basically, this is a, a a defensive war of essentially the Russian nation invaded by German Nazis, um, which is, you know, absolutely part of the story, obviously, right? Uh, but then that is that is a very clear, you know, uh, it's a just war, um, and it's a war uh, contemporary Russians can and should be proud of. Um, but if you then introduce other actors into uh, this um, this narrative, if you if you include the Koreans who first get deported and then some of them get to fight towards the end of the war. It becomes much more ambiguous, right? The 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 victimization aspect becomes much uh, bigger. Of course, if you introduce what's going on in in what becomes Western Ukraine, Western Belarus, and the Baltic states, uh, the story is much more one of victimization uh, than of national defense, as far as the Soviet war effort is 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 concerned, right? Um, so that that makes that narrative and the the kind of the memory of this war i think the kind of political implication of that war much more complicated um and it's much less useful for kind of uh easy um easy instrumentalization um and i'm i'm I, i try to avoid the trap to then say you know uh Everybody in, let's say, the Baltic states, or everybody in Ukraine, were just victims. Because uh, even if you then just switch it to their perspective, it's also much more complicated. There's uh, a large uh, collaboration with the Germans. There's implica- There's there's um, uh, local participation in the Holocaust. Uh, the as I indicated, the post-war insurgency largely targeted their own people right ukrainian surgeons killed ukrainians as as uh as traitors to the nation um uh so uh it it you know it doesn't if you actually look at it really if you take the multinational aspect seriously um it becomes a much more ambiguous uh story which strikes me as much more interesting to think about. And I mean, my personal favorite, and and I, I helped publish a, a collection of essays on that, uh, is the case of Polish Jews. Um, Polish Jews who become Soviet citizens because of the expansion uh, in September 39 uh, into Poland and then get deported by Stalin as class enemies and that is the luckiest thing that happens to many of them, because would they have not been deported, they would have been in the way of the German army in the summer of forty one, and most of them would not have survived that. Uh, while the Polish Jews who were um, deported, you know uh, to the Soviet hinterland, by and large, survived, sometimes ended up fighting uh, and moving. Others uh, left the Soviet Union uh, during the war. Um, and I mean, the, my my uh, new uh, home city of Melbourne, uh, a, 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 a big, big part of the local uh, Jewish community is of that extraction. So there's also, a, I have a kind of a, a local connection to that as well. But, you know, that's a story which is very easy to tell as one of black and white, right? Because they weren't saved by the Soviets by deportation or that was not the, you know, that was not why they were deported, but it did save them. So it it uh, I think you get a sense that the, the story just becomes uh, much more one of uh, real historical complexity rather than the kind of increasing nationalization and kind of uh, instrumentalization of this war for contemporary uh, politics.
1: Uh, On that note, I do actually have a little bit of a question about contemporary politics. Um, This is, of course, a very political question, so feel free to not answer it. However, considering contemporary Russian aggression in Ukraine, and Georgia is where well is kind of like irredentist claims reaching into nearly every corner of former Soviet space. Uh, the Great Patriotic War has become, as you demonstrate, kind of this core foundational moment in the Soviet Union. How has this moment been nationalized and weaponized? In the wake of Soviet collapse and how might this very multinational experience that you just talked about help us think about post-Soviet space?
0: Yeah, that's a great question and it might be worthwhile for listeners to uh, realize that we're recording this on the day. Uh, Vladimir Vladimir which Putin has sent so-called peacekeepers into the Donbas. Um, uh, it has been, and it's one of my great frustrations that this, this war has been uh, re-politicized and re-nationalized, um, both in the former Soviet space and abroad. I mean, there's a whole new group of historians in Britain and in the United States who want to argue that, you know, somehow this was just a, uh, uh, you know, the, the entire Soviet war experience was, was uh, terrible and they only won because of the, of the alliance with uh, um, the United States and Lend-Lease. Again, you know, making, making this into a, a, a kind of a cookie cutter, black and white kind of story, uh, which simply it isn't. Um, this could be, you know, remembered in all its complexity. This could be a history that could be shared, um, and could be, you know, could be remembered carefully uh, across new national borders today. Um, but instead, what happens in most countries is that uh, a very uh, a very facile narrative of uh, national defense and national liberation uh, gets told that is of course particularly true in Russia where uh, this has become um, the the center of kind of a new cult of of the war and the the thing you really should be proud of and and informs a lot of the kind of um, policy decisions uh, which are made around um, around uh, intervention in what the Russians call the near abroad. Um, but it's also true, unfortunately, for example, you know, in Ukraine, many many have. Uh, grabbed onto the OUN UPA as, as the kind of great freedom fighters, um, which is a really problematic legacy uh, because of the participation of some of them in, uh, in the Holocaust, but also because of what they did to other Ukrainians. I mean, this was quite nasty. Um, And so democratic Ukraine to embrace these as as the heroic forefathers rather than let's say you know uh, the rev- the ukrainian revolutionaries of of uh 1917 1918 um, uh, is highly problematic uh and and not helpful at all but of course similar things happen you know uh, in Poland, in 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 the Baltic states, and so on. So so there's a real reluctance to embrace the the entire complexity and nastiness, and but also you know human dignity, which still existed during this war as well. Um, yeah, in a way, I'm sort of writing against that kind of nationalization. Um, I'm trying to not not. I'm trying to avoid being trapped in any of those kind of uh, national uh, narratives.
1: Yeah, that was actually something I really appreciated about your text, is that working against some of the um, false dichotomies that still are very pervasive when the public is having conversations about this. And I think it should be noted that this book is very much written for a public audience. It's also great for those of us that work in history, but it's really targeted to those who are just kind of interested in this and want to understand it in a very complicated way, but in a concise way. There's so much very rich material throughout the entirety of this text. Like all authors, I'm assuming you had to make cuts along the way, uh, keep something out that you really wanted to include. Is there anything that you had to cut that you really want to share with listeners today? Um,
0: That is an excellent question. I think, I mean, really it's many, 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 many more individual stories. I I just recently cleaned out uh, an entire filing cabinet in my office which had notes and 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 Xero copies and uh and sketches on other kind of individual um, group experiences uh, individual experiences um, of this of this war um, and yeah so i'm i'm not sure i can i can uh point to one particular one but there's uh there is so many really rich uh, individual trajectories in this war, and in in a way, these are kind of the the heroes of my story, if you like, are are kind of individuals and their families trying to negotiate this 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 uh, space and this time um, and survive. Not many of them, of course, uh, don't. Um, the other thing I started, so so in other words, this book could have been like four times as fat easily, uh, but I, I was very determined to not make it into a, a, a doorstopper, but something that could be read, I don't know, on a weekend or something. Um, the other thing I, I wrote a little bit more about, which I then uh, felt I didn't know enough, was, which of course in our current conundrum also uh, is uh, quite interesting, is the role of disease um, and the way this is dealt with, both on an individual or family level, and then on a state level. Disease is everywhere, right, in this war, everywhere, um, and so is quarantine. Uh, and often that is one stumbles over that in, in you know, I don't know, re- reading reading uh, uh, interrogation um, uh, protocols of. Uh, collaborators with the Germans who are who get uh, interrogated after the war by uh, Soviet police, uh, and they just mention in passing when they get interrogated, like, "So when did you arrive in this camp or something?" And then they would say, "Yeah, we we came there, but we didn't do very much for the first two months because we were in quarantine." So <laughs> there is a whole history that could, uh, a, a whole book could easily be written on uh, on disease. How to deal with it? How people try to deal with it? How the 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 uh, the various regimes uh, fighting in this war uh, try to deal with it? Uh, so there could be a whole book on on that, and and particularly you know connected to travel. There's so much movement around, uh, and you need to control disease moving with these populations. So there's I mean there's good really good work by Don Filzer um, on the public health system, but there could be something that's that's going beyond that. And also thinking, thinking about the, the experience of all of this, the experience of disease, uh, of having to deal with disease uh, of, of uh, losing, losing uh, friends and family uh, to disease um, and, and uh, you know, negotiating quarantine regimes and so on. But I, I felt I just didn't know enough about this to really properly integrate it in this book. So it's, it's sort of here and there. Um, and it would probably have been much more prominent, I think, if I would have started this uh, during, the, during the global pandemic. But I, I ended it during the global pandemic. But that, that was uh, a kind of a, uh, a storyline which I got quite interested in.
1: Yeah, it's always funny how the moment at which we're reading a source informs what we notice or don't notice. Um, so, we have taken quite a bit of your time today. And I want to wrap up our interview with my kind of traditional closing question, which is what are you working on now? I'm kind of wondering if it's going to be something about disease and World War II? <laughs> That's
0: a great question. Well, I mean, Part of the answer is that I'm a little bit between projects and I'm also a part-time university bureaucrat at the moment, which takes a little bit of my time, but I am, I am part of a, um, of a project with my colleagues here, Julie Fedor, um, uh, and Alison Lewis, uh, it's called KGB empire. Uh, we're interested in, uh, the comparison of the newly opened, um, KGB archives in Ukraine, the Baltics, and Allison does the kind of outer periphery that is uh, Germany, um, the Stasi archive, in which she's worked for a long time. So it's a comparative project, both on the archives, but also on whether or not there's uh, kind of national differences in KGB techniques and uh, KGB styles. The problem, of course, is the last two years, we couldn't travel to the archives and um, uh, because of the pandemic, and uh, at the moment, we can't travel to at least Ukraine because of uh, the, the um, international world, well, the, the war there, in, in, in short. So uh, where that will go, we shall see. Uh, we have the funds, we have a very generous grant from the Australian Research Council. We have the, 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 the means to do it, but at the moment, uh, the world is just a little bit in our way. Um, so we'll we'll see um, uh, where we go with this.
1: That sounds amazing. Uh, we will have to touch base about Ukrainian archives later. I want to thank you for joining us on New Books Network and Eastern European Studies today, Mark.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Listeners, please pick up a copy of Mark Idley's Stalinism at War, the Soviet Union and World War II, directly from Bloomsbury Press or your local bookstore.